This morning we're kicking off week number three of our vision campaign called Growing in Grace. We started out uh, the last couple of weeks by talking about a, a foundation for biblical community. And uh, week number one, we looked at First John chapter one and said fellowship with one another is something that begins with fellowship with God. That fellowship has to be a lot more than bagels and coffee in the hallway. It should be much more about gospel conversation because fellowship flows out of the shared life in Christ. It's the spiritual reality that gives the church our identity. Then last week we talked about sin as spiritual sickness that afflicts us all and that infects far more than you'd think. We said that hiding or denying sin actually makes sin sickness worse and that the only cure comes through gospel healing. Brokenness isn't a dark secret that afflicts only the really bad people. It's universal. Jesus didn't come for those who think they're healthy. He came for those who know they're sick and cry out to him by faith. This morning we're aiming outward. We'll be looking at... uh, a passage from the Old Testament in 2 Kings 7, and it'll give us a model for sharing gospel abundance that will then apply in two areas, loving the least and reaching the lost. I need to briefly give you some background on 2 Kings 7 before I read the passage. By the way, it's on page um, 265 in your blue Bibles. I'd encourage you to grab those and follow along in a minute. But here's where 2 Kings is. We're in the mid-800s B.C. in Israel, and the armies of the king of Aram, or Syria, modern-day Syria, are besieging the city of Samaria. The people inside are starving, resorting to cannibalism, but they have no choice um, to, uh, to to exit the city because if they leave, they'll be cut down by the sword. It's an impossible situation. Here's uh, 2 Kings chapter 7. We'll pick up in verse 3. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say, We'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, They got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives." The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace." So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. This is God's word. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that uh, this account from history is recorded for our benefit today. We ask that you would use it in a fresh way. Grab hold of our hearts and minds and spur us to action with our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we're looking at is uh, the picture of sharing gospel abundance. You, You know, the biblical authors are never merely interested in reporting history. The Bible is neither a history book nor a science textbook nor um, a religious manual that tells you what to do. It's none of those things. The Bible is a theological work, theos being the Greek word for God. It's about God. It reveals who he is to his creation. And here, the the literary structure of the passage gives us a a, a sense of where the, the biblical writer is trying to emphasize things in this account. Um, if you look at this diagram, it's um, representative of a chiasm. And um, the verses go from A to B to C to D and then back in kind of um, matching fashion in terms of their themes. When you find a chiasm in Scripture, and nobody finds these on their own, only you know, scholars sitting behind desks for hours at a time tell us uh, that you know, these things are there. Uh, and then we can see them for ourselves. But um, when you see a chiasm... What's at the middle before you reverse course is the literary emphasis of the author. That's what he's trying to point out as the center of the passage. Well, what's at the center of this passage in verses 6 through 7? That um, we read, the Lord had caused the Arameans to flee. In this impossible situation where there was such a severe famine that mothers were sharing plans to cook each other's sons. That's earlier on in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the the king finds out about this and tears his clothes. God has intervened. God has brought a solution to an impossible situation. God has delivered. That is the point of this passage. But deliverance and salvation didn't come to the city until evangelists, if you will, proclaimed and shared the good news. Uh, Right here we have an example of what we talked about last week in week number two, gospel healing. Of all people, lepers are the central figures in this drama. Of all people, lepers are the agents of salvation. They were unclean. They were diseased people. They were forgotten by society, ostracized by everyone else out of fear. Their physical uncleanness was assumed to be linked to their spiritual sickness. People wanted nothing to do with them. And gospel healing comes through those who know they are sick, week number two, who have no reason to hide it anymore. You know, it struck me as we were singing, I forget what the song was, but I think most of us sung, um, perform your wondrous deeds for those who are weak. I heard most of us say for, and I thought to myself, did the words change? Perhaps they did. But the words on the screen say, perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Isn't the first version usually what we think? You know, the, those who are weak, those, those people, last week's theme, people who have it really bad, who are really messed up, they need your wondrous deeds, God, and we're going to ask that you help them over there. And that attitude is like the Pharisees. Thank God I'm not like the tax collector and the sinner. 
They need your help, God. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. That's the picture of gospel healing we've been talking about. That's why we've been profiling Celebrate Recovery. That's why I would still say today, again, that those who are going to Celebrate Recovery over time are going to prove to be among the healthiest spiritual Christians in our church. They know they're weak. They're not hiding it. They're seeking gospel healing. Perform your wondrous deeds, Lord, through those who are weak, like four lepers who are ignored and abandoned by their people. And yet you use them as your agents of gospel healing. That's just the way God rolls. Well, these guys walk right into the camp. They have nothing to lose. We're going to die here. We're going to die there. Let's try and uh, see if they'll um, receive us, these Aramean enemies. They walk into the enemy camp at dusk. We're told later on that it's at dusk that the Arameans flee. So it's a bang-bang kind of situation. They walk in, and those guys are walking out. And in an instant, verse 8, famine becomes feast. They find things just as they had left them. Dinner in the pot, ready to be served. And then quickly, in another instant, verse 9 Verse 9 gives us the statement that we're focusing on this morning. The men say to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. What's, the, um, what's going on here? Their consciences are troubled. They're stuffing their faces. They've been starving um, out, out of the city, living like homeless people. They stuff their faces, and then their consciences are troubled. They realize they had discovered through no skill or wisdom or accomplishment of their own this treasure trove of life-saving, God-given grace. And there was so much more to be enjoyed. How could they not share it? So they go back and announce and tell and proclaim. There are two different words in the Hebrew that are used six different times. Um, to share this good news. Do you, do you know what the word evangelize simply means? To tell good news. That's it. The, these four lepers, forgotten by society, are evangelizing their city. They're, they're, they're going back and telling and proclaiming and shouting and announcing so that everyone will know. The lepers called it a day of good news. When we get to the New Testament... We read of good news a lot. There's a Greek word that's the equivalent, and we give it a, a special word, gospel. It simply means good news. And if we paraphrased the lepers, we would say this today. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, of gospel, and we are keeping it to ourselves. What's the good news? Not just that our stomachs are going to be full and the enemy is gone. The good news is that much richer because Jesus has come. The good news is God has come in, in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and His coming and living and, and, and dying among us is proof that God's promises are being fulfilled. What are His promises? To make new all things. And the proof is when Jesus gives us these foretastes. The sick are healed the hungry are fed. The, those who are enslaved spiritually are uh, released from that kind of prison. These all come through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Rich, abundant gospel grace. Far more than these four lepers were able to taste. If God has given us this kind of abundant gospel grace that saves and rescues and provides significance and security far more richly than 2 Kings 7, how can we not share it? There's so much more than an Aramean army could possibly have collected. God's grace is limitless. That leads us, secondly, to um, loving the least. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is describing the end of history when he returns in glory. And he says this, The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That word translated the least uh, has a, a sense of insignificance or triviality. Obviously, Jesus is not saying these people are trivial, that they mean nothing, that they, they don't matter. He's not saying that. He's using that term from the world's perspective. And we need to ask, who are the forgotten ones? Who are those ignored? Who are the ones in contemporary society without voices? We could provide all kinds of legitimate, biblically informed answers. But what God is increasingly laying on our hearts as Grace Redeemer Church is this answer. The forgotten ones, those without voices, are the fatherless, the orphans, children without homes filled with love and care. Early in 2015, we'll be publicly launching our new ministry called Refuge 686. Our working group uh, that has met for a number of months, uh, probably over a year, led by Karen Jacobson, came up with this mission statement. Refuge 686 is a church-based ministry believing that parentless children should find refuge, nurture, and care in loving Christian homes that are supported by a local church family. Four weeks from today will be the first Sunday after our vision campaign. We're going to be celebrating Orphan Sunday a week late, but um, we'll, we'll have everything um, thematically planned. And Orphan Sunday will include a grace story testimony by one of our church families who has, um, is currently serving as a foster home. And we'll have an um, adult Sunday school hour presentation to share more details. A number of you have asked, uh, as news of this new ministry has started to filter into the congregation, why are we starting this ministry? And there are uh, a, a number of really good answers, but the main answer starts with these ideas. First and foremost, adoption lies at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This good news centrally involves the reality that sinners who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are not only transformed from enemies to friends, but orphans to sons and daughters of the living God. The doctrine of adoption is at the heart of the gospel. There is no full good news without this reality, that Father in heaven calls His people son and daughter. And, uh, and then we look at the reality that throughout the Bible, God is described in these kinds of terms, Psalm 68, 5. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. That's what God does. That's what He's about. That's the kind of heart He displays. Shouldn't we follow by imitating Him? 
By the way, the verse that follows this is what gives Refuge 686 its number in its title. Psalm 68.6 says, God sets the lonely in families. And that's what the ministry is going to be about. Also in the Old Testament, the Lord speaks through his prophet Zechariah. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. And if you're listening, you'd say, okay, God, I hear you. What do those look like? What does it mean to administer true justice and show mercy? God provides the answer. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. These four categories of people are not randomly chosen. They show up throughout the Old Testament over and over and over. Justice and mercy for these four categories of people are not secondary issues either. They're central to worship of the one true God because His heart of compassion goes out for the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the alien, the least among His people, those who, um, because of society's direction, Considered, are considered insignificant, powerless, without voices. And, and by the way, um, the, the contemporary equivalent to alien is the immigrant, the one who has left home, but in his or her new place of dwelling is not really at home, doesn't truly belong. It's the Old Testament alien in today's society. In the New Testament, um, you may be more familiar with this verse, James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Listen to the co-author of an amazing book, I I mentioned this a a couple of months ago, uh, called Orphanology. He writes this, We were spiritual widows until Christ, our bridegroom, loved us and gave himself for us. We were sojourners or aliens, wandering aimlessly until Christ saved us. We were orphans until God the Father adopted us and made us brothers and sisters of our elder brother Christ. Consequently, to love these three groups of people is to demonstrate the love of God in a powerful way. This is all gospel grace poured out abundantly upon undeserving sinners like myself and like you. If we've tasted of this abundant gospel grace through faith in Jesus, we've stumbled upon something better than an empty Aramean camp with food and treasures to plunder. How can we not share this gospel treasure with the least, specifically with orphans, And would that include our homes? Would that include our love and attention and care given to those without any of that? Could God even be calling you to bring a family, a child into your own home, to call family, to to call a forever family? We, we, We will be exposed to all kinds of opportunities to love the least, to serve those who are on the front lines of loving the least as foster families and adoptive families with our volunteer love and care, secondarily or primarily, with our finances, with our skills and gift sets. Refuge 686. Pray 
that the Lord would shape this into a ministry overflowing with gospel grace. It's going to change our church. I trust it. Sharing gospel abundance needs to have an outlet of loving the least. And sharing a gospel abundance needs to have an outlet of reaching the lost. Thirdly, few maturing Christians need to be convinced of the importance of evangelism. But most of us need to be convicted of our hoarding of gospel grace. Like lepers who could have refused to share the abundance of food while the city a few hundred yards away starved. The reality is that soon after they satisfied their empty stomachs, they were troubled in conscience. And the question that I want us to consider is this. Are our consciences ever troubled as we feast upon gospel grace ourselves while ignoring all who are eternally dying apart from Christ? Like four lepers stuffing their faces knowing that everyone over there is starving to death. Are our consciences ever troubled spiritually regarding the gospel. In the growth group material that many of you will be using this week, or beta group material, the opening question is this. How do you think GRC is doing at reaching the lost? And some of you will say, well, you know, we should be doing this, we should be doing that, we don't do this, and and we're poor at this. But as the question, and I'll I'll give you the um, advance notice, as the question will point out, your answer to that question should be the same as your answer to this question. How are you doing at reaching the lost? Because effective evangelism is not a program run by the church. Effective evangelism is accomplished through personal relationships. Of the handful of churches that I've been a part of as a staff member or or an intern, and um, the, the higher number of churches that I've observed from a, a bit of a distance, I know of very, very few people who have come to Christ through programs for which churches have spent lots of money. I know of a lot of people who have come to Christ because someone invited them, someone spoke to them, someone shared their testimony, someone told, proclaimed, shouted, shared, announced good news. There's food over here. There's life. There's death in the city. If you stay there, come here. There's life. I found it. In his book, The Unchurched Next Door, Tom Rainer shares this surprising finding. He's a Christian sociologist, researcher. He says 82% of the unchurched, people who don't go to church, never did, are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they are invited. He, he, he says this means almost 130 million Americans could come to church if they were invited. But only 21% of active churchgoers invite anyone to church in a given year, and only 2% invite an unchurched person. If they don't go to church, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, they're not just going to wake up on a Sunday morning and think to themselves, you know, I should go to church today. I should walk into some place I know nothing about and just be confident that I'm going to find my place in the, you know, the middle of the aisle and participate. They're, they're not going to do that. Even when you invite, many of you would uh, attest to this, your friends, your, your neighbors are, are a little skittish. They don't know what to expect. Um, but they're far more likely to come if you invite them. 
Then if we run, some people have asked me, why don't we advertise in the newspaper? Because the unchurched don't look through the religious section of the newspaper, wondering where they should go to church on Sunday mornings. They're doing something else. But if you, whom they know, invite them, express concern, offer to come and sit with them, assure them that they're not going to be weirded out, 82% of the unchurched in America are somewhat likely or very likely there's a scale to come to church. Rayner also pointed out, or found, by the way, in his research, that unchurched people would rather talk to a layperson about faith and spirituality than a minister or a pastor. You have an effective, more effective angle in the lives of your friends than I would as a pastor. As we position GRC to become more and more of a renewed biblical community, We need to emphasize that the outward orientation of the church is not defined by how much program, how much stuff we have on the church calendar, how how many meetings that we're holding about evangelism, um, how many big events that we're throwing with all kinds of fun and games and attractional um, elements. But the outward orientation of the church is measured instead by the natural overflow of gospel grace by each follower of Christ to each of our personal circles of relationships. That's evangelism. That's effective outreach as a church. Scotty Smith is a pastor who wrote a book called Everyday Prayers, and it's something that shepherds my heart most mornings. Uh, For June 23rd, he wrote about what makes us think, woe is me. Um, Things that cause us to be sad, even move to despair and self-pity, like a pimple before a date if you're a teenager, or not making the team, or not getting the job you wanted, or getting sick at just the wrong time, or being ignored or rejected. Woe is me. Something that we can relate to, even if we don't use those words. He contrasts that with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, who says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's a whole different kind of woe, isn't it? Woe to me if I don't overflow with the gospel abundance that I have tasted because God has been gracious to me. I didn't find it through any ingenuity, wisdom of myself. God plunked it in my lap. Woe to me if I selfishly keep it all to myself when there's a limitless supply that can bring life-saving grace to people who are in need. And Scotty Smith, a pastor, ended the devotional with this prayer that was a spiritual arrow right into my heart. He wrote this. We're not all gospel preachers in terms of our gifts and calling, but every follower of Jesus is to be a consumer and conduit of the gospel of your grace and kingdom. Forgive us, Jesus, when we waste our woes by feasting on our disappointments and criticizing others. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how can you say, woe is me? Because you're sick. Because circumstances haven't worked out according to your decree. How could you say, woe is me, when you have feasted upon gospel abundance in this life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ? How can you and I be so selfish and narcissistic and inwardly oriented to say, woe is me, when people are dying apart from Christ? Grace Redeemer Church is a rich church 
because of gospel abundance. The word of God is held high. The king is reigning in absolute authority. The spirit is powerfully at work. Jesus, the great physician, is healing brokenness in our midst. By the way, healing service right after the service, 10 a.m., come forward for prayer and anointing uh, for any reason. Grace Redeemer Church is rich because of all of this gospel that is at work. This is a day of good news. How can we keep it to ourselves? Only because of Jesus can we gain more by giving away our greatest treasure. That's our desire as a renewing biblical community. Let's pray toward that end. Lord God, show us how rich we are in Christ. Lord, for those who are apart from Christ, show them spiritual poverty and show them that there's an abundance, Lord, to be feasting upon in grace. And let it overflow from us, Lord, as a gospel community. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.